I am here in Albany. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's, you know, that's good. I've, I've got a, um, a relatively local guest, and I had to verify that I'm saying it correctly, so I didn't sound like I'm saying Albany, New York. Yep. Albany, Georgia. Um, coming to you live from Southern Woods Plantation in Albany, <laughs> Georgia. I, people are going to get tired of me saying Yeah, that's right. That's uh, all right. This is uh, Bob St. Pierre, and I am joined by... Mr. Quail himself. Did <laughs> you have that nickname? I don't think so. Well, we just, okay. we just coined it. Uh, Mr. Quail, Dr. Bill Palmer of Tall Timbers Research Station, uh, who, who is uh, here in, in town to speak to the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever National Board of Directors, which uh, is holding our quarterly meeting at uh, Southern Woods Plantation this weekend. And uh, Dr. Palmer will be uh, uh, giving a presentation to our board of directors here shortly. And he's uh, been kind enough to, to share a few minutes with the On the Wing podcast. So Absolutely. thank you very much, Dr. Uh, oh, it's Dr. great Palmer. to be here. D- should I call you doctor? Bill. Can I call you? Good. Please. Good. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to take your temperature. <laughs> uh, well, let's start. Um, I know you, you're You've been passionate about quail your whole life. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. When, when did this, um, this passion for quail germinate? Yeah, it, um, I've always been interested in the outdoors as a kid. I would bike to the local lakes and fish. I'd fly fish. I'd canoe. I camped all over the place. And then uh, I had an epiphany when I was in mechanical engineering in college, actually. <laughs> Okay. And decided I probably wouldn't be too good at designing refrigerators the rest of my life. So <laughs> dropped out of college and took a few months off and toured the country and camped. And on my way, I've always been an avid fisherman. And on my way, I actually got uh, pretty sick along the way at one point, And I had to go to find a doctor and get some antibiotics and stuff. And in the doctor's office, there was a gun dog magazine. And believe it or not, that kind of sparked my interest in the bird hunting side. Really? Of it. Yeah. So, so gun dog, the man, not not just categorically, but gun dog magazine. Gun dog magazine. Wow. The gun dog magazine. Okay, gotcha. And just jumped into it. And, uh, you know, over the course of several months, uh, ended up deciding not to go the route I was in and switched to uh, wildlife management field, searched colleges, figured out what I wanted to do, and, and ended up going to three. And they finally had to hire <laughs> me after 11 years of university. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, Gundog Magazine can take credit for the, <laughs> the, the nation's foremost quail biologist. There's some truth to that. That's pretty yeah. cool. Do you remember a specific article that tipped you over? I don't. I don't. I just I love the quality of the pictures. I've always had dogs in the family. Yeah. And uh and there was just something about bird hunting that just, boom, it hit. It was like, bam, I had to get into it. So had you grown up bird hunting? Or no, the, no, 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 fi- no. All fishing. All fishing. Yeah, Mechanical fishing, engineering. Yeah. yeah, not so much. Uh, I'm going to take a little sabbatical, follow so fish around, uh, yeah. concert tour for a little while, yeah. and then boom. And then I got into wing shooting, dove shooting, duck hunting, would go to Minnesota quite often, huh. uh, rough grouse shooting. And then I was going to go to Virginia Tech for my uh, doctorate in wildlife and had a grouse and woodcock project. And in the last minute, the funding was there, but the professor I was going to work with ended up going to NC State, and I went with him, and uh, we cranked out a program in northern bobwhite management or quail management. 
and then it's just been quail ever since. Yeah. So it it seems like uh, it was late in life for me, but um, it's just been a good what I don't know, twenty five years of it, thirty years. <laughs> That's a lot. So, so what was it about quail that um, that has become what's now a lifelong passion for you? I've always, even ever since that time early on game birds were just really of interest to me hmm. and uh i studied the old literature i read the old books you know i bought sporting literature i just got into it and there's something about a game bird all over the world i found fascinating and uh so when we started studying quail it was it was interesting because um you know a declining bird species indicator of the south the king of game birds and it was going away so I felt like versus some of the other species, this was one that needed a lot of help, and so it just caught my attention. Um, and it's been a challenge, but it's been uh, it's been interesting. It, for clarification, when we talk quail, we're talking with you. We're talking specifically bobwhite, or are you? Do you have a? Um, do, you, do you have a background in scalies and gambles and merns, or is it primarily the southeastern bobwhite? The only background I have in those other species is hunting them. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I've, 100% of my research has been on Bob White. Okay. Yeah. And that research takes place at, I'm looking at the logo yeah, on your shirt, Tall, Tall Timbers. Timbers. So, long story, but Tall Timbers was kind of the, uh, early on, there was a gentleman named Herbert Stoddard who uh, studied Bob White, was one of Valdo Leopold's con- contemporaries, and hmm. they were good buddies. Had totally different views of management, um, um, but... In the end, Aldo, excuse me, Herbert wrote a book uh, on Bob White management. It's really the first scientific treatise, and it's kind of the Bible of quail management in the day. It was written in 31, published. But anyway, long story short, I was at NC State at the time. I had built up a big multi-state quail research project and got a call from the current director. And they said, um, hey, would you like Herbert Stoddard's old job? And I was like, yeah, man, that sounds <laughs> yeah, kind man. of interesting. <laughs> so wrote down, took a look, fell in love with the region, and um, it's gorgeous. So never went back herbert stoddard you yeah. said that uh a different point of view on wildlife management than aldo leopold how so well Her- herbert stoddard if you ever want to read a really cool book read a book called Nat- um, memoirs of a naturalist it's an awesome book on the southeast and uh and his life um that he wrote autobiography but um he had a view that people were part of the system and uh he was mm. very much pro prescribed fire he fought for fire when fire wasn't cool okay. um, and ended up actually when he published that book, it was interesting. Um, he worked for the biological surveys. The local properties had hired him. The local private landowners had hired him to study quail and find out how they could have more quail. And um, he, he went to publish the book and the, they threatened him, told him to take the chapter out on fire hmm. because at the time fire was a naughty word. So is, uh, was Aldo? No, uh, okay. not necessarily, okay. not necessarily. But uh, I don't, you know, Aldo had written some stuff about overuse of fire he okay. understood fire and as him and stoddard became close friends and and worked together through the years uh he recognized the value of it and of huh. course you know how he passed away in a burning sure uh, but you know, had a heart attack but the bottom line is that uh, stoddard fought a lot of the early battles on the on understanding that fires as much as part of nature is rain and um he had to threaten at the time the biological service said, well if you're not going to publish it like i want it published i'll get it privately published and then anyway they ended up editing it and making it right but stoddard uh, was a really brilliant character and um, a lot of his ideas are have become more in vogue now in the 90s to 2000s he's become more of a, a known individual in conservation and in 
ecology circles. Um, uh, there's many reasons for that. But. You said that you have the position he once had at, at Tall Timbers, or was this a position previous to that? So they were kind of teasing a little bit because Stoddard was hired, came in in the 20s, wrote his book in 31, and continued to, continued to do research and work in the region. But he, early on, he in his book, written in 1931, he had this light, this sentence that said, what's needed is an independent, and by independent he meant not controlled by government, not controlled by universities at the time who were anti-fire, mm. independent research station to study the effect of fire on plants and animals. Mm. And um, that came true when uh, Mr. Beetle, Henry Beetle, who owned Tall Timber's plantation, and had no heirs, left it to Tall Timbers to create Tall Timbers with his, Stoddard's vision in 1958. Hmm. So when they said, come get Stoddard's old job, well, Stoddard was already through his life practically by then. And, uh, but, but he did, yeah, create, I can see he the did create Tall Timbers. Right? Oh, yeah, he totally created Tall Timbers. And just uh, for a guy that self-taught basically no high school education, uh, he ended up being one of the greats of uh, ecology. Huh. Yeah. And today you are president, CEO, and director of research. Do I have that correct. right? That's correct. Yeah. How do you fit that all on a business card? <laughs> <laughs> it just says Bill. That was Lo- a, you Bill. weren't expecting that part no. of the question, huh? It just says Bill loves to hunt. Here's my number. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That, so the part of the question you were expecting is, so tell us, you know, so we're talking to the you know, 150,000 Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members and, yeah. and all of our followers out there, a lot of folks that probably haven't ever heard of Tall Timbers. Tell us a little bit about um, what Tall Timbers' mission and, and vision is. Yeah, so our mission is to promote exemplary land stewardship in southeastern forests and elsewhere. Um, and by that we mean, you know, the use of prescribed fire and careful timber management, sustaining land use, keeping people on the land, but keeping it whole. So you're not giving up one of Stoddard's things. You keep the forest, you keep it going, you manage it such that you don't lose any of the parts. And so that, that you know, it's a conservation ethic organization, but we also understand that land's used. It's farmed, it's timbered, mm-hmm. and it's burned. So the, all those things... Um, are kind of the ethos of the organization and a, and an independent streak. One thing I love about Tall Timbers is that we're not scared of a challenge. We're science-based. I'll explain that in a minute. But we, we have um, a science background. We're very much pro-land management and management in our science. And so we every study we design, we try to have some management implication or outcome that helps people achieve their objectives on their land. And if the research points us in one direction, that's where we go, whether it's not in vogue to do a certain practice or this practice or that practice in mm-hmm. current people's rose-colored glass, glasses. If the data shows that's what should be done, then that's what we try to figure out how best to implement, following all the rules and regulations, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, Tall Timbers is based in Tallahassee. Okay. We're right on the Georgia-Florida line, and we have a few acres that spill into Georgia. We got 30, Sounds 30 like a 200. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, we love both states. And <laughs> we have 3,200 acres at Tall Timbers with scientists that study fire science, which we can talk about, fire ecology, vertebrate ecology, or our Stoddard Bird Lab, which is all things not shot that are um, part of the ecosystem. Hmm. Uh, of course, the Game Bird Research Program, we have 140,000 acres under conservation easement that we hold. We have a land trust. And then, of course, we do a lot of community planning and so forth. And then in 2012, I was lucky enough to uh, host or provide an opportunity for the organization to 
along with our board to get gifted a 9,000 acre property called Dixie Plantation, which has got the longest running field trial, the Continental Field Trial on it. It's been in there since, oh gosh, 1911. And is that like in that. Tallahassee or that is that on the Georgia side? It's, it's also right on the Georgia-Florida line okay. about, as the crow flies, just across the, on the east border of the Red Hills property. The Red Hills province is this rolling red clay, limestone, karst topography region, beautiful open piney woods. And Tall Timbers is on the west side on the Oclockney River and um, Dixie's on the east side yeah. on the Alcilla River. So we now manage about, our own land, about 12,000 yeah. acres and then 140,000 acres under conservation easement, and we probably work with, I don't know, half a million acres of other private landowners and public land managers around the And states. how many employees? We're right about 50. Okay. And we have a, a really new cool opportunity in Kenansville, Florida, in central Florida. We've got a beautiful uh, Music Prairie Flatwoods property that uh, we're managing, and we have a full-time staff down there, and we own a building down there, and then we got a biologist in South Carolina, and... Uh, and then a biologist part-time in Alabama, and then, of mm. course, Clay Sisson, one of our key folks in Georgia, and then Theron Terhune at Tall Timbers. So from the quail side, uh, we've grown quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost exclusively, if I'm reiterating this correctly, based on research, right? It's, it's research of the ecosystem, the southeastern ecosystem, and um, as opposed to um, it's not a member-based organization it right? is a member-based organization. oh it is okay yeah, I didn't we, know have, that. we have members we have an endowment we have uh donors and and the key to our research is that in that area there's you know 100 plus privately owned focused on quail wild quail management um owners and they have land managers and so it's a combination of the researchers working with the land managers they kind of co-evolve ideas we test those ideas using scientific practices, replicated studies, the whole nine yards, radio telemetry. We've radio tagged over 30,000 quail, and Tall Timbers developed the radio tag quail. Really? Uh, so yeah, the radio tag for quail. And so um, that co-evolution of information, it's not just researchers on one side saying, okay, managers do this. It's really the inspiration, a lot of it. And that's where a part of Stoddard's ethos, too, was he really respected managers. Land managers see things every day that mm. us that aren't out on the ground every day don't see. So so it's that combination of really skilled management staff out there managing 400,000 acres of quail lands and a research staff to test ideas. So it's really fun. So if, I, <clears throat> if my memory is correct, I think I originally met you probably 2004-ish in Stuttgart, Arkansas, mm. on a duck hunt, I believe, as we were... Um, Howard and Dave Nomson and a group of us were talking about um, Quail Forever was just conceptual at that yeah. point, right? Yeah. So you were one of the folks that we pulled in to get um, a little expert in, input <laughs> on, you know, do we have a place here? Yeah. And, and, you know, your answer was Quail Forever? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I have a, a tremendous amount of uh, respect for the organization. I always felt like uh, the leadership was top-notch. Um, they put habitat first, they put money on the ground. Uh, it's a great model and, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect. So moving it into the Southeast with quail, I thought was not, you know, for some people think, oh, you're tall timbers, you do research on quail, you promote quail management, you work with private landowners. This is a threat to your organization. This is competition. I'm like, no, not at all. I mean, it's an opportunity for the strengths of the organizations to work together. So I've been real positive about, and always every chance I get promote quail forever as a 
something folks should get involved with. And we do both uh, from the Quail Forever side and Tall Timber side have have a tremendous working relationship from the from before we were even Even born. born. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah, you're right. And you and Howard obviously have a tremendous friendship. Here you are at our national board of directors (laughs) meeting. So that that's a demonstration of how closely connected we are. Yeah, yeah. He trusts me to come say what I want to say, and it's and it's it's usually right in line with what he's thinking and. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of possibilities for this thing to continue moving down the road and be synergistic. So if I dial back my memory to that 2004 conversation, it it hits on a point you've already brought up three times, and that's fire. Yeah. And um, I, I think one of the nicknames of quail is the firebird. That's right. There's a few birds that are called the firebird, yeah, right? I think sharp-tailed grouse yeah, even has that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, even back in 2004, you, were, you impressed upon me how important fire is to quail. Mm-hmm. So much, like more so than people probably expect. They, yeah. We need fire. I think what you told me back then was we need fire on the landscape of a particular place that you're trying to uh, manage habitat for quail every other year. Yeah. Is that accurate? That's 100% accurate. Yes. And, uh, you know, people don't realize that the history of fire, and this is part of what Stoddard dealt with, but fire was a typically used thing in southeastern U.S. Um, People burned their woods because they didn't want wildfires. They didn't want pests they didn't want disease they didn't want Mm. ticks they wanted to be able to see and oftentimes it would be little things people just don't remember but you know if you wanted to go and have a new tobacco patch to start your tobacco crop you'd clear the woods you'd burn it out and so you can't clear the woods and burn it out if it's got 10 years of fuel you'll have a a wildfire so they they frequently burned um it was not unusual for fires just to jump from neighbor to neighbor people didn't have grassy yards they had sand yards they raked them so the why because one they could see snakes two <laughs> they could see uh you know if a fire came nearby it wouldn't come anywhere near their house and there's it was just part of life it was part of the culture you know the uh, the florida landscape was wide open um i had one gentleman that used to joke about could he test his students by saying if a squirrel was in delaware could it jump tree to tree to Florida back in the late 1800s or, you know, and, and of course he was hoping they would understand that, no, it was different then. People mm. moved fire, you know, there's, there's lightning strikes that cause fire, but sure. then Native Americans and Europeans use fire throughout the country and the plants and animal communities evolved with them. There's, there's no reason why you would have a, a grouse on Martha's Vineyard if there wasn't uh, open landscape. So, so what happened though, though, was when in the, 20s and 30s there started to get adopted this concept of of forestry that was more growing a crop and it was a very european model and and there was a lot of both ecologists and foresters that were just completely anti-fire and they started a program called the dixie crusaders that went throughout the southeastern u.s just telling people they're dumb rednecks for burning so the idea was you you're uneducated if you just randomly burn your woods now there may have been some truth to overburning in the day but the bottom line was folks had lived in that ecology for many, many years, and quail thrived, as, as all the red-cockaded woodpeckers, the gopher tortoise, the diamondback mm-hmm. rattlesnake, the butterflies, you name it. And it was real interesting because um, I was giving a talk in Kentucky one time, and I had this old gentleman come up and say he remembered as a little boy the Dixie Crusaders coming into his town. 
And he said they preached to his daddy how blah, 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 you know, you shouldn't burn. They had psychologists that did studies that showed that the Southerner just burned because they were bored. There was nothing else to do. Hmm. I mean, it was a very mix of misinformation, Mm -hmm. um, misguided ecology, Mm -hmm. not understanding Stoddard's uh, knowledge about the importance of fire, and um, probably a little bit of uh, uh, north-south still. Mm -hmm. But, But... Anyway, long story short is they pushed fire out. They made people feel bad about lighting the fire. And it slowly and surely is with urbanization and people moving from the countryside to the city and all these things come together. Next thing you know, fire is off the landscape. Mm. And um, and quail are firebirds. It t- talk to me about that. Quail are... Fi- so what is the effect that fire is so important for quail? Yeah, well, as you know, quail, are they like to go move through open vegetation. Mm-hmm. They like to scratch. They like to be under a... Um, canopy of weeds and shrubs and grasses and um, fire every two years uh, promotes that mix Um, every three years you start getting a lot of hardwoods every four or five years you just get thick shrubs and the the structure of the vegetation the physiognomy of the vegetation and the ground the openness on the ground the seed production the insect production it's all tied to fire Uh, the 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 keeping the hardwood encroachment out from filling up the piney woods and, and uh, closing the canopy, keeping the sunlight coming to the ground, all these things play. Mineral release, fertilization on the topsoil, carbon sequestration down in the ground. There's Because you, you burn frequently, you get everything. You get the, the biodiversity. You get uh, a very healthy root system and, 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 and plant and animal life system and fungi in the soil just sucking in carbon. And you get... Um, you know, open piney woods. Anyway, it, the whole thing just is is designed for quail. So that's that, that's that's it. It also shifts the predator community. You know, you're going to have um, fewer of the common predators we see uh, across the landscape. So it 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 it's a whole process. So the the I guess the conspiracy theorists out there would say, well, you're going to burn everything. You're going to burn up all the quail. Yeah. So is there a a strategy for how you approach a patch of woods um, to burn it where you're not affecting the resident birds? Yeah, every everything is tied to season scale and frequency. So if you look at a block of, say, 500 acres of woods, yeah, you wouldn't want to go in there in June and burn the whole 500 acres every other year. Mm-hmm. But what you would do is break it up maybe into four, five, six burns and pick one and burn it in March and pick one in April and one in May. And then you have this mix of burn season and frequency and size. You don't want the burns too big. And if they're too small, it's inefficient. So our, our, our easy answer would be, you know, 25 to hundred acre burns burning between March and mid May and doing it such that each patch receives fire every two years. And that would be the ideal system. Hmm. Um, So I I wanted to switch gears on on research. You know, I've always thought of Bob White Quail as um, having the Mr. Mom advantage where, you know, hen lays a nest and then the male, right, in many instances will sit on the nest and the hen will go off and have a secondary nest. Potentially, yeah. Potentially. And that could happen up to three times, right? So I think the most we've documented is four hatched nests oh. out of one hen, but that's pretty darn rare. But two or three is not uncommon at all, and that's part of the population explosions you see in West Texas and things where you'll have 
you know, very few coveys, and three years later they're everywhere. Uh, it's a combination of things. But, yes, so you have about, I think if I'm remembering correctly, around 20 to 25% of the males will raise one brood on average. So incubate and raise a brood, which is part of their strategy. You know, if the hen's feeling good and not pressured and stress hormones on high and yeah, she can crank out a nest and dump it and crank out a nest and dump it and crank out a nest. So it's pretty phenomenal. They'll they'll lay more eggs than they weigh. <laughs> so they need energy and they and need, you know, all kinds of good things. I'm not familiar. So that doesn't happen with pheasants. Right. Doesn't happen with rough grouse. Right. Doesn't happen with sharpies, chickens, say. Yeah. Does it happen with scalies, gambles? Does it happen with other quail species? You know, I that it 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 definitely happens with other bobwhite species or types of bobwhite in Central America, and I doubt it happens very often with scales. It probably happens with California quail some, huh. um, but it bobwhite has got probably one of the most complex mating systems of many birds. I mean, some are monogamous, some are polygynous, some are polygamous. I mean, in other words. Some are monogamous for their whole season this season, but then they'll be polygamous the next season. And, and, and what'd you call that? Poly- poly- polygamous. <laughs> so having more than one part, more, more than one male, or that, more than one. Yeah. Oh, quite, that yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah, they're very, very dynamic, and their ability to adapt and take advantage of explode is part of their system. Because I mean, you're going to lose up to ninety-five percent in one year to mortality. On average, in the best managed lands, it's around 23% survive a year, so you're losing 70%, 77% a year. So wow. they have to have the reproductive ability to pop back. Hmm. And so a lot of some of the other quail species, like blue quail, they have slightly higher survival rates, so they don't need to have that kind of boom reproductive hmm. system. Um, mythology. Hmm. There's an awful lot of mythology around quail, or at least... Is it mythology? <laughs> um, turkeys. Tur- there's a lot of talk of turkeys eating quail and quail eggs. Yeah. I know that there's been documentation of that happening once or twice, but does that happen on a bigger scale? Um, um, there's no doubt in my mind that a gobbler will snatch a little quail chick and gobble them right down if it has the chance. We actually just had our field day today. We uh, Yesterday we showed a video of Sandhill Cranes catching chicks and eating them i'm sure an egret would eat them i've watched a great blue heron fly across the water and snatch swallow uh mm-hmm. young you know, trying to fly and eat them yeah they're um they're going to eat whatever they can but the reality of whether it impacts we have a lot of turkeys and a lot of quail so the turkeys will not have an impact on quail where they don't have the advantage of seeing a quail like in an open bahia grass pasture or something where they could chase it down a little baby and eat it so no there's no evidence that there's any any situation ever where the turkey population has kept the quail back. And I, I know some people don't want to hear that, but that's the truth. Yeah, <laughs> I would have got that one right. Uh, fire ants. Yeah, we get a lot of a lot of um, uh, folks saying that fire ants are the reason that quail populations have declined because a, a quail lay a nest uh, right on top of you know, patch of fire ants yeah. and the ants will consume it. Yeah. It's really interesting because um, on average, we lose about 5% of nest to fire ants. And we have, I don't know, on average about 8 to 20 mounds per acre, depending on where you are in the region. And um, But sometimes you'll have a nest sit right next to a fire ant mound and every chick hatches. So those fire ants get a, you know, basically a chemical clue to to what they like to eat 
And um, if they haven't discovered quail eggs as something they eat, they just look right past it. So just because there's a fire ant there doesn't mean they're going to eat the egg. We do lose some nests. Now, Herbert Stoddard, back in the day, uh, found about 5 to 12% of nests were destroyed by fire ants, but that was the native fire ant. Hmm. So the multi-queen colony fire ants that we have today, the invasive fire ants, they take 5 to 12% per year, just like Stoddard found. So, you know, the reality is quail evolved with fire ants, and the fire ants are having about the same impact they did back in the okay. 20s. So there's so. some impact, but it's not uh, yeah, it's, probably it, landscape scale. It's not. And, you know, the, um, the, the, the problem, too, is if you try to treat for fire ants, it's very expensive, and fire ants are capable of moving back into an area very quickly, and it's just not. It's not economically feasible to do anything about it. So, what are the what are the key predators that um, um, you know target quail? People, yeah. number one. I <laughs> know <laughs> uh, is the key ones are in our area: raccoon, mm-hmm. bobcat, possum. So the armadillo, the the egg eaters, yeah, the meso mammals, and that mm-hmm. that's something we've done a tremendous amount of research on, and we understand how to monitor and manage those. And what we do is we use an, basically an integrated pest management for you farmers out there approach, where we run a pretty simple index, find out where your meso mammal population is, and if it's above a certain threshold, we can with pretty good certainty tell you it's reducing your quail population by a certain amount, and then you could decide whether you want to invest in trapping. Both, you know, states have um, opportunities for landowners to manage their predators where they're doing good habitat management, which is a positive, something we've changed with policy through our research. And um, so, yeah, it's a misunderstood thing. Again, a lot of people recoil against predation management, mm-hmm. but the reality is, like Stoddard would have taught us, we're part of the system, and we as humans eradicated the red wolf, we eradicated the panther, and largely <laughs> both species across the landscape and uh, they used to keep those critters in check and they're not here anymore so um it's kind of one of those things as a biologist i say don't don't take a tool out of a toolbox understand the system let the data drive your decision and and try to be rational about it and and so a lot of the plantations do manage their mesomammal predators. They'll never eradicate them. They just manage them and keep them in check. And that probably has a lot of bystanding benefits to the gopher tortoises and the other species of ground-nesting critters that those animals chew on as well. Mm-hmm. So we're not about, at the same time, there's a lot of properties that we say it's not worth your time. Leave them alone. Right. Um, habitat. Where's habitat fit in the mix? Number um, one, number yeah. one, number one, yeah. number one, number one. Got to start there. And um, we're really, you know, no matter what, uh, uh, habitat is, is, is key. And, you know, for our properties that we manage, they're anywhere from a quail per acre to we've had as much as six quail per acre. We've had, um, on average, there's one and a half to two and a half quail per acre. So that's a very healthy, strong quail population. But it starts with habitat and then these other practices. So... It- from the pheasant perspective, when we look at <clears throat> the number one habitat need in the pheasant range, we can say 98% of the upper Midwest needs nesting cover. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of yeah. northern North Dakota and Montana that yeah. needs some winter cover. Yeah. They really don't need food, yeah. right? Pheasants can find food, but they need grass to nest in and, mm-hmm. and some brood cover, you know, that pollinator habitat where they can find mm-hmm. find some um, insects when after they're hatched. Can you make generalizations like that across the bobwhite quail range where that 
nesting cover is the key or is it brood cover or is there something else that's uh or is it a more evenly um diverse uh dispersed mix of habitat needs yeah it's hard to generalize with bob white because it's going to vary depending on the system and the landscape and the difference because quail unlike pheasant are native species Mm -hmm. they're adapted to the native native ecosystem and so if you have the proper fire regime or you have the proper grazing and disking regime depending on an more ag landscape, you're going to have that mix of grasses, forbs, and shrubs. I like to call it the third rule. If you look across good quail land, it should have about 30% grass, 30% forbs, 30% shrubs. And and in that, you're going to have brood habitat because mm-hmm. they like to, they need the hardwoods to brood under to stay out of the rain at night. They need the forbs and grasses to produce insect, and they like to nest in grasses. So you got it all in the package. Hmm. Um it was, there was a time that I think biologists were focused too much on one factor or the other, and it misled policy and procedures. A great example would be if you said nesting habitat's limiting for quail, then there was a years where there was a lot of promotion of warm season grasses on farms mm-hmm. or cattle farms. Well, the problem with that was that just grass alone is not quail habitat, one, and then the surrounding woodlands were ignored, and they were predator haunts and hawk haunts and poor habitat for quail and people put those things in and no response well we could have told them there was going to be no response so focusing on the system instead of the one component Mm. for bob white is is pretty critical okay yeah um you know as i think again about uh comparison pheasant to to quail um when you when i look at the nesting season for quail it's significantly longer yes. than uh, than pheasant. than pheasant. Yeah, um, I think it's you know for you obviously correct me. It's like May to August on quail. Uh, Is it actually, even longer than that? They start nesting in April and they'll hatch their last ones out in our area in October. October. Yeah, man. <laughs> Holy buckets. Okay. Yeah, they're pretty productive, I would so say. That, <laughs> right, and that that leads to the the you know four time four nests a year that's right. potentially yeah, they right? have it and and that's one of the things we preach a lot about because the the because they have so much mortality that having habitat good for the entire nesting season because like this year we had serious rains in june mm-hmm. that wiped out the chicks because they're sensitive to rainfall right but be, if you have good habitat throughout the year then they started renesting again in august and we had a great august september hatch which is going to be for some people the majority of their birds in the, in the bag this year. An average bobwhite quail clutch is how many eggs? Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. And um, I've been witness to some wild flush covey rises. Yeah. Right. I'll show you a picture one later. <laughs> that that are much bigger than that. Yes. Are there super coveys? Do they, like where yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. So you have a couple things. You have dump nests. You'll have some hens that'll have. 18 to 25 eggs and there's more than one female putting eggs in the same nest really you'll get that um be quail their breeding behavior is goofy but it's beyond goofy because by the time they hatch them out they might raise them for just a handful of days and dump them um after maybe 12 or 13 14 days they'll be well actually by seven days of age a lot of broods already mixed multiple broods so by mid-June, early July, it's always a good sign if you go out and you might flush a group of 50 juveniles together without a single adult. Hmm. And uh, that's what we, you know, that's a mega brood. 
it's maybe from five or six different broods and the parents are off nesting again so you really want to see that when you're seeing that in may and june and bumping into these big groups of 30 40 50 60 chicks of you know various ages they they're they're precocial yeah and they survive and then the mom and dad or mom dad and dad or dad mom and mom <laughs> depending on the breeding <laughs> system are off uh cranking out some more so that's they, they can explode we we have seen that now they only explode with good weather good habitat and reasonable predator abundance hmm. yeah yeah they 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 have to be one of the most um population species that can fluctuate in population yeah. our biologists call it r selected right um boom bust. r factor right? yeah that's right and they are they are uh, capable of like i said you know they, that's why i give a lot of credit to the managers that manage for wild quail because it's kind of like balancing something on a on a needle because you know you make one mistake in timing and you can really mess up a year you overburn and then you have a drought, you can go from having two quail per acre to a quarter quail per acre just because you don't get the production. So it, it, these guys and gals are focused on day-to-day. It's got to get done. Mm. It's got to get done in a timely fashion. And, and that's one of the things that the public land managers challenge with because agencies can't move as quickly and deftly to say, oh, I'm going to change course because it's drier than I thought, or I need to do X, Y, or Z. And and that's quail management is kind of dipping and dodging and making decisions. You got to plan for the year. Um, sometimes you have to change. Is there um, a growing demand for public land quail hunting in the southeast, or do you not hear that very often? No, I think there's. I don't. I I don't really know what the demand is. I'll tell you a little story. When I was in Mississippi as a graduate student, I was talking to a biologist, and I said, "Why doesn't the department put more effort in quail i was just curious i was um, studying wild turkey at the time and but i was a quail hunter by then and uh the guy said well no one hunts quail they all hunt deer and turkey mm. i said well but that's because there are deer and turkey and right, there's no right. quail so you build it they'll come i mean there's a, a wildlife management area near tallahassee that has good wild bird that fwc manages for public lands and so we do have some of these in georgia and florida and alabama that there are some spots that are good and uh, they'll have, you know, 30 hunters lined up at 4 a.m. trying to get in. And, of course, they only let so many in. Okay, so, that was, that was going to yeah. be my question. Is it a lottery system or a uh, first, first come, come, first serve on some. Some are lottery systems. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there there's uh, – there, but but I, I think that I've seen uh, in the last five years a an acceptance of what's needed to do in, to be done to manage for quail mm-hmm. and that by the agencies, and you're seeing the agencies adopt those and implement them hmm. and so it 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 is not something that just happens overnight it takes focused management so i think the tides turned a little bit for the benefit of quail on public lands and i'm hoping we can continue to see that tide move so if uh but i just want to say sure. and it's cre- critical that people understand that on areas that have frequent fire for many years i mean the red hills has the largest population of the endangered red cockaded woodpecker of any private land landscape in the united states it has 40,000 gopher tortoises. It has 70-some threatened and endangered mm-hmm. species. And everyone's proud of that. Yeah. But it, it, it's on the backs of a 100 years of quail management. So it's not just for quail, all these processes. I think people are finally saying, wow, we found this endangered species. We didn't even know it existed. And it's right here on this person's private land. That 
and they're like, yeah, I see it all over the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does feel like um, you can draw a parallel to what's happened out west with the sage grouse. Yeah. Right, where the sage grouse is sort of the indicator species for the health of a sage ecosystem. <clears throat> and you look to the southeast and say, well, the bobwhite qu- quail is the sage grouse of the southeast. And if we can improve habitat for quail, then a whole array of species for the entire ecosystem is going to benefit. Yeah, it's one of the things I'm really proud of is because Tall Timbers has a research on all these species, not just quail, but we're we work with a private landowner in various states. One's in North Carolina that we're working with really intensely right now. We got a bunch in South Carolina, and and they adopt a culture of fire, and so that fire uh, is what drives the system, the plant community, the, mm-hmm. the animal community, and it selects for species that were adapted to it, which is largely the threatened and endangered species on uplands in the southeast. So it really spreading that culture of fires into different areas. Um, is is absolutely critical to the success for all these species and some of them boy next thing you know it they start you start instead of having zero all of a sudden you get these backman sparrows showing Mm -hmm. up in great numbers and you know things like that it just it just it's just part of the system and it's really cool um it's it's not destroying anything it's improving everything so you know one of uh pheasants forever's signature um pieces in our habitat toolbox is crp right yeah and crp has been tremendous benefit to quail particularly in the great plains states and you know middle america missouri nebraska kansas but it's always been a little bit of a struggle down here if i'm correct but then there was um, a thinning and burning practice put into the 2014 farm bill yes has that helped uh, make crp a better tool for bobwhite quail management in the southeast it is it definitely is and for people that have a passion for quail they're implementing it there the i i think that the there's been a big backlog of burning that was put on the books but hasn't been done and part of that is this whole problem of what we've lost a generation or two of people that have never done a prescribed burn Mm. so they have difficulty implementing it and then you come back and say well who's going to do the burning Mm And contractors, well, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. It gets, it, it, it's a bottleneck. So it's on, you know, we, myself and uh, biologist Reggie Thaxton out of Georgia DNR, we went up and uh, through his contacts, we met with NRCS and folks up there and about the farm bill and the importance of that thinning practice being tied to burning. And so um, I applaud it 110%, but it's just one piece of the pie. Okay. Um, it, 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 it helps. But then if you have this bottleneck where there's not the expertise on fire sure. anymore, there's some training that needs to go along with it. And so we got some programs in place Sounds that are like trying to help with that. We're at first base, but we need a little bit more to yes, get Yes, exactly. And and also the realization that, you know, not everybody's as passionate about a quail as we are. <laughs> Until so, you see a covey rise. Yeah, then, exactly right. right. That is there's something ju- darn magical. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> do you remember your first covey rise? I do, yeah. It was actually in um, the mountains of Virginia, believe it or not. Yeah. I was trout fishing. <laughs> and I walked through a covey, but I, I started getting into, uh, got my first setter when I was an undergrad and uh, at Virginia Tech and then befriended a professor and uh, we went over and visited with a forester in eastern Virginia and they were shot quail and that was special then I went to Mississippi and I hunted quail in Mississippi back then there were quite a few on the national forest because they were still 
raking up piles and burning them and you go to clear cuts and find quail pretty mm. readily i don't know if that's still true today i'm kind of doubtful it is but the herbicides have taken a toll on that process but anyway yeah no i i had some good times <laughs> D- describe a cubby rise for me so oh, somebody wow. that hasn't uh, ever witnessed one well it's kind of like it scares you and then <laughs> that excites you no i mean uh uh, there's two types of covey rises, in my opinion. There's the the early season covey that gets up kind of at your feet, and it's a it's kind of a scattering of birds, and uh, and then there's that later season, just an explosion of energy in all directions. And uh, you know, even today, I jump back a couple. Th- if you jump back, it's over. I mean, if you, you <laughs> it's done. You're gonna miss. You might as well just not even try. <laughs> I, I always uh, I'm amazed that um, you definitely hear it before you see it yeah. you know like how rough grouse you know it's like that chainsaw starting up yeah. and they're oh <laughs> there it is <laughs> right whereas a cubby rise if you think about 18 birds let's say 18 birds and just explode you know 36 wings yeah and you just like yeah right <laughs> like a drone you hear it and then you're like oh <laughs> you know? well i think what people what i like about it too is that Quail hunting it, for wild birds is just a different game. I mean, they run. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got radio tag coveys that we've documented running a quarter mile where people point the covey two or three times, individual birds running, and think they found a new covey, but it's the same covey. Huh. You know you have to get there fast. You got It's 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 really kind of a, a I wouldn't say contact sport, but it's a, it's a really, <laughs> it, a good quail hunt is a very fast paced and, yeah. um, and, and challenging quarry to chase after. It's not lollygag down the road, dog points, saddle up there and shoot it. it. It's, you better get there fast and you better get through that cover and you try to get those birds up and, yeah. then, and they're hard to hit and they dodge behind trees and they're only, you know, 150 grams. So, you know, it's, it's a heck of a target. You know, when, when you do bust a covey, and say you squeeze the trigger twice and nothing happens, nothing falls. Yeah, right? never seen that. No, no, no. I haven't either. But um, <laughs> then you say you want to, you see a couple land, right? And you want to yeah. go follow them up. Yeah. And you can't find them. Yeah. What, what the heck? Where yeah. do they go? They tuck in and uh, it's hard for the dogs to pick them up. The best thing to do is just leave that area and circle back. And it's hard to make yourself do it. But I've had situations where, I have found birds that I saw a light and couldn't find them and then came back two hours later and they're still there, but the dog can smell them and point okay. them. Yeah. Oh. They so, have very many, they do the, they, they'll run off, they'll circle you, they'll flush wild. They they have a lot of evasive techniques. <laughs> what's um from a Southeast quail expert, what's, what's the um, ethics about, um, how many birds you should shoot in a covey and do you follow up trying to find others um i it depends so you know i I don't like to shoot a covey down less than six or seven birds so you know if it's yeah you know taking two each person shooting two birds out of a covey of 18 is no big deal and if you follow up on a bird or two that's fine Mm -hmm. um typically if you shoot two birds out of a covey you move on and find another covey but um, you know that it that I remember a friend of mine in North Carolina. He was a tobacco farmer and a big bird hunter. He used to shoot in the seventies over six hundred quail a year hmm. in farms in North Pulling Carolina. Macro. Yeah, and uh, but I, you know, he said his granddaddy who was a big hunter back in the day. He said, you know, shoot it down to three uh, hens and one cockbird. 
Holy mackerel. <laughs> and you'll be fine. But that was when there was a that landscape. Was a different day. There's a landscape of quail. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. So I think, you know, it just it, most people that are into quail hunting these days are into it for the bird dogs. Yeah. That's what I'm about. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I can't eat 15 quail right. at dinner. So, you know, I... Get your two out of the cup yeah, guys and move on. Come home with six, and my partner and I can enjoy a nice meal, and yeah. you know it's wonderful. Bird dogs. Yeah, you're not uh, you're not exactly the stereotypical quail bird dog owner, <laughs> or are you? <laughs> I don't as know. A, as an English cocker fan, right? You're yeah, I, I do have co- English cockers. Yeah. So you know, I would expect you to have an English pointer or an English yeah. setter. But I've you had have both. A I've had all, but I have a French Brittany. That's my. Uh, that's my quail bird dog, and he's okay. a heck of a bird dog. There's a friend named Guy de uh, Valdine who uh, gave Guy de la Valdine, excuse sure, me. Sure, the, the writer. Uh, the writer. And um, after I had a, I used to have uh, drat tars for years. I bred them, and uh, I also had English pointers and setters along the way. I used to have my drat tar that would kind of range, you know, 50 to 70 yards and have my English pointer out there at 200 yards with a tracking collar on. And uh, for whatever reason, I had a, a thing where one of them just got away and, never got away and got away and i got killed so anyway uh long story short he said you need to have a dog and he gave me this little guy and uh it's turned out to be just a dynamo bird dog and i'm very appreciative of him for doing that because it's uh i've never had a britney in my life but this one comes from from field trial lines and has some great range and point and it's been fun and then i use my cockers as pickup dogs not so much quail hunting. Sometimes they like pick to pick up dogs, like for retrieving. Oh, okay. But just just verify yeah, you don't yeah, go yeah, downtown. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> sorry, I had to put slide the gratuitous no, joke in there. We, yeah. So uh, the French Brittany goes on point. The covey rises. You shoot twice. Two birds fall. Happens yeah. every time. Yeah. English cocker goes out now, and retrieves. I rarely shoot two birds out of a covey when I'm hunting on my own. Okay. Uh, if if you're out there with on a on a plantation hunt or wild bird hunt and you got eight eyes watching and they got retrievers ready to go you can shoot two birds i don't want to lose a bird so i i'm very happy just shoot a single bird out of a covey let my dog retrieve it and move on okay yeah they are tougher than people give them credit they're really tough yeah because i i hunt in west texas with um ted gartner and steve snell and and they just shoot one bird at a time yeah you know it was you know we we had dogs that were going to retrieve, but, uh, you know, you won't believe how tough these birds are. They'll find the, you know, the, the holes and they'll bury themselves. Oh, man. They know where they they're... They disappear quick. They they have a map in their brain. When they hit the ground, if they can move, they know the nearest hole to bury into. And um, so that's part of the reason. Yeah. I'm a decent shot. I'm not, unless you can stone cold kill them, yeah. they're going to get away. No doubt about it. Uh, one leg they'll run. You know, have you seen a pheasant? They're just a. They can carry a lot of shot, so it's just not worth it to me. I don't. I. I'd rather just make one kill, get the bird, and move and go on. I. I remember once, and um, when I moved from North Carolina and took the job in Florida, there was a guy named Connie Jernigan. He was a big bird hunter in Wilson County, North Carolina, and, and I had this wonderful bird dog, Buster, who was the. I've seen him walk on water. Just put it that way, <laughs> and. Uh, and that's true, but he, uh, he, po- he, I left him with Connie. I said, I'm not going to have any hunting to do. You know, I got to move, we got to get a house, got all this stuff. So I left him with Connie, who I trusted, and um, he called me one time and he said, You would not believe what happened. I said, What? He said, We shot a bird and it went down. This is an English pointer, and he said, He ran under this burn pile, which is a bunch of sticks uh-huh. piled, you know, piled up from a timber operation. 
And he said they, him and his partner just sat back and drank a Coke while uh, Buster dug at that pile and then would come out with a stick and a log and drag it out. He said he was dragging three foot logs out of there <laughs> and he came back with that quail. He was <laughs> one hell of a dog. But yeah, the birds try to get away. <laughs> uh, what's your setup? Shotgun, chokes, um, ammo, what are you using? Uh, I shoot, I've always shot Beretta BL series guns. They're back 20, in the 20 70s. 20 gauge, okay. one ounce load and, uh, and 28 inch open and tight. And I, and one of them's got double triggers. I love double triggers, but the, uh, yeah. Seven and shot. a half shot? Seven and a half. Yeah. 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 I, I've got too many stories. I've seen people that are superb shots with very small gauge. They're, they're out there. I've, I've got a good friend now who, um, names Rick and he shoots a 410 and he never misses. I mean, mm. he's just one of those people. I think I know him. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, everyone <laughs> knows Rick, but now he's also smart. He's not taking uh -huh. 40 yard shots, sure. but, uh, but uh, um, I've also had well-known individuals show up with small gauge guns and claiming they're expert shots, and I've watched them fold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's ugly. <laughs> you know, well, good try. <laughs> yeah. I see feathers, but that's all I see. <laughs> for the record, you and I have never quail hunted no, together. No, <laughs> that's right. That's for the record. Not, no, no, no. <laughs> His name's not Bob. Yeah. <laughs> uh um all right a couple uh as we start to wind down um the other thing that occurred to me on crp is cp33 the yeah. conservation practice um known as bob white buffers or upland buffers um mm -hmm. how's that working down here is there a need for more acres is landowner demand high it's a great practice and for those that are interested in quail yeah it's an excellent practice it, it you know i actually did my phd research on those buffers really yeah early on we we were the first we kind of copied what they were doing in the uk with their headlands work on gray partridge and uh they are very effective for approving nesting and brooding and um and, and bird production on ag landscapes um so uh you know they can always be a little wider um, yeah describe them for folks that maybe don't know exactly what we're talking about basically on the edges of fields your productivity your crop drops off a little bit often especially against woodlands and so forth so having a, a stretch of fallow area in the field to promote insects and seeds for the brooding birds so grass and grass forbs, and forbs, legumes. legumes those shrubs will come in over time but you can disc it back up mm -hmm. but or burn it but um you know in ag areas, sometimes they're so clean, there's just no habitat to first attract the birds in the spring. You need that. So if they're coming through your farm and they don't see a field border or some fallow area to utilize, they're just going to keep on going. Mm. I mean, some of these studies find these birds moving 13, 20, 30 miles in the spring. So mm. they're, really? they're looking for habitat. Yeah, when they're, when they're on a big open landscape, they can move long distances. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely. So... Anyway, so you want them to hunker down on your property, right. and so that habitat helps. And then once the crops come up, they can utilize that interface of the field border and the crop. And in the wintertime, when it's all said and done, they're going to look for hard cover. So they're going to move off those fields into the woods. So some combination of a field border system tied to a burned wood system or a clear-cut system, I've seen that work really well on properties we've worked with in various agricultural okay. areas. And it... it, it you can have excellent shooting on that. And it only eats up, what, 5% of your cropland. And if um, somebody wanted to do a public lands quail hunt in the southeast, yeah. what advice and what direction would you give somebody? Uh, I, I mean, I definitely would do it. I think that there's, 
the number one thing I would do is call the agency biologist and talk to them. Which state would you po- point towards? I think both Florida and Georgia are great states to do that. Okay. We have uh, Tall Timbers has been working with the agencies in Florida. We've got about sixty or seventy thousand acres that are frequently burned uh, beyond what the states already do, and they've got great fire programs in Florida and Georgia, the best in the union. So, so yeah, um, they're out there. Then there's and so the best thing to do is like you know call the state biologist and say I'm looking to come down to Florida or Georgia from Minnesota or South Dakota or Kansas or New York or wherever and say I just want to get my bird dog into a wild quail yeah and and there's more and more people that are doing that you know they they'll go to a wildlife management area to see a wild quail and uh, like you mentioned the covey rise is so impressive oh. and so exciting and such a beautiful bird and no it's a native bird it's, it's really cool it, so yeah it, it's doable I wouldn't talk people out of doing it just don't expect to find 20 coveys a day like okay. you might on a boom year in Texas or Kansas or Oklahoma it is I mean I do think it is an underutilized um, like spring break opportunity for that's right yeah, you know yeah, when you yeah. think about uh Yes, Minnesotans, yeah. and uh, how cold it gets in February. Yeah, you know, throw the bird dogs in the truck, head yeah. to Florida, drop the and, kids and, off at Walt know, Disney World. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, rather than sitting on a beach somewhere. Yeah. No, I know. It, no, it, and it's it. Be honest with you, the landscapes and in, in some of these landscapes are just absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. There's places that you can quail hunt that are on the worldwide registry for stargazing because there's no light for as mm. far as you can see. There could be 200,000 acres of public lands in one pop. So, But some of those are burned better than others. Some are in focal areas, and, and the state's biologists know which ones they are, and they track them. And there's places where you definitely can find wild birds. You just got to be a little smart about it and go tackle it and not, not be scared to walk. <laughs> All right, so... Dr. Bill Palmer, President and CEO of Tall Timbers and Director of Research, <laughs> I'm giving you the magic wand. Yeah. You, um, what would you do to um, to bring wild bobwhite quail back on the landscape in a big way, mm-hmm. um, with you know no red tape, no holds barred? What what could you do, and what would the response be for quail? Yeah, I think what I would do if I could wave a magic wand would be quadruple the land management bu- budgets of our public agencies and give them the charge to manage these ecosystems to sustain the system with fire thinning and fire and, and i guarantee you quail would come back hmm. i mean if we could just take care of our national forests and state forests that the way the local managers on the ground want to with the resources they need to do what they need to do i mean it, it it isn't that hard and it isn't that much money hmm. so it takes just trusting those people and giving them the right charge and then uh, giving them the resources to do it is this this is not rocket science it sounds like i mean the two big themes money right yep. Yep. to do fire yep fire is absolutely, absolutely critical and and so it you if you're gonna burn you gotta burn mosaically and in the old days, they used to use night fire. You know, a night fire would just creep through the woods and leave, burn some and leave some. And there's lots of ways you can do it. There's some creativity there. But the bottom line is, I mean, there there were places in, in Florida in the 70s where they would burn on a small scale across large areas. But, but people all jumped on the task of burning. And, and somehow we've gotten away from 
burning for ecosystem goals than we've just gotten to burning for acreage goals. Mm. Acreage goals are easy to accomplish. Ecosystem goals aren't. So if I could ma- wave a magic wand, that's that's what it would be. Mm. And uh, I believe that uh, I think we can have a big bang for the buck, not just on quail, all those species that benefit right. w- and water quality and carbon sequestration <laughs> for those people that are concerned about that. Again, quail is the indicator species. It is. It's so much else. Right? No doubt about it. Certainly a social uh, and an ecological keystone and species. And they taste darn they good. They taste real good, too. And do you have a favorite uh, favorite recipe? Uh, I do. I actually debone the bird and then just flash grill it um, is one of my favorite ways to cook it. Just only two to three minutes because by the time you debone, it's only mm-hmm. about that thick. Any yeah, seasoning you put on it or sauce? My, uh, I got a little garlic sauce I put on it. Nice. It's really tasty. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. If folks want to learn uh, a little bit more about Tall Timbers, how do they do so? Yeah, talltimbers.org. Check us out. There's some good resources online there, and uh, they can become a member at relatively low cost and get all our e-journal information. We put a magazine out once or twice a year, and e-news is out multiple times a year, and, and there's a lot of cool opportunities to get involved. But I think, you know, we got as a nation a problem dealing with fire and as conservationists, we have an opportunity to take advantage of the disastrous fires we're having as we turn the tide toward managing the landscape such we don't have fire. It's going to have positive impacts on conservation of game birds, game and non-game across the country. And mm-hmm. so we just got to keep our eyes tuned to that issue. Um, that's where we're going to have the biggest yeah, fire, big opportunity. Fire, well, prescribed fire is... Well, critical for you know you pick the species really the species or you pick and it helps us with our wildfire problem but fighting a wildfire is going to cost somewhere towards a million dollars per day Hmm. and if you have 50 wildfires burning that's 50 million dollars we're bleeding out a day Hmm. and wildfires stop when it rains and Somehow we got to get this shifted to where we're managing our fuels in an ecologically sound manner and put that $50 million toward managing our lands for the benefit of the public and um, and not have the wildfires either. So when you say managing our fuels, are you talking about the the wood um, on the, the landscape? Accumulation. Like yeah. I said, in 1920... You're not talking fossil fuels. No, You're no, talking no. We're about talking about the, the wood, our, the, wood the, the debris, and yeah. the ground. And so... You know, Stoddard knew that fire was part of the ecosystem back in the 20s. We still know that today. There's more and more science that proves that every day. And so yet we've created a tinderbox mm-hmm. by holding back on fires and putting fires out. We really need to let the fires that are natural burn as long as they're safe. And there's a lot of, lot of positives we can learn from the southeast because southeast has been the best um, in managing fire in the nation. Anything I missed that uh, you wanted to talk about uh, related to Bob White quail, tall timbers, quail forever? No, I think you covered it pretty good. I'm, um, my first quail hunt is next Saturday, so I'm psyched. <laughs> hey, what's, the, what's the forecast for the, the southeastern United States for the season ahead? I, I, we're going to have a pretty darn good year, um, despite the hurricane. Uh, and, this, and it's very sad for the folks that got impacted by that and can't take advantage, but it was a, it was a good hatch in our area. Hmm. Uh, a little bit of variation, but, yeah, it's going to be pretty solid. So I, don't, I think it's going to be a good year for folks. Well, thoughts and prayers to all the folks that uh, were They're suffering. Uh, we're, and continue to suffer because it's, um, 
it's really devastating in parts of scary devastating yeah um, it it does look like um well it looks like like a hurricane yeah (laughs) it looks like a hurricane went through (laughs) um so thoughts and prayers to those folks um but uh it, it is a treasured resource down here, and um, it is. the Covey Rise, if you haven't experienced it before, if you live in, oh, let's say you live in Bismarck, North Dakota, and you, <laughs> you've never seen a Covey Rise, it is an absolute bucket list um, yeah. worthy of a trip to Florida, Georgia, or some point, some direction in the southeast, because it'll, it's worth the trip. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Bill, thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, uh, that was Bill Palmer uh, with Tall Timbers Research Station. You've been listening to the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever on the Wing podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Quail Forever, do so at quailforever.org. We uh, absolutely encourage you to get involved and join Quail Forever. It's a completely unique magazine from the Pheasants Forever organization, and we put our money where our mouth is, right into habitat for quail all across the country. So, again, thanks for listening to On the Wing from the Southern Woods Plantation in Georgia. We'll uh, talk to you down the road. Thank you.